0: Hello, welcome to the Courtney Turner Show. So this is a little bit different than the Courtney Turner Podcast. Those of you who are familiar with the Courtney Turner Podcast, I think we're up to almost 300 episodes now. Uh, we do long form, so it's uh, you know kind of goes for as long as it goes. This is a little bit shorter format. We are going to be putting these on the radio as well, and we will be putting these out on the cat Studios, which is television, and that is where we are today. And today, I am here with may be familiar to many in my audience with Jay Dyer how are you doing today
1: I'm great thanks for having me glad to be here
0: thank you so much for being here but so I always say I I can't keep up with all of your content but I <laughs> it's a great treat you when can. I I uh, yeah right um, but I always tell everybody that uh you know if they're really crunch time if they just listen to your fourth hour they'll be way ahead of the curve on uh, most things you know yeah, They try
1: loads. to compact it into that one
0: yeah Absolutely, I mean, it's worth listening to all of your stuff. but the, Thank you. Definitely, yeah. So so I was listening to one of your streams, though, and you were talking about, I think this was when you were talking about Jordan Peterson, mm. uh, and I had, he was kind of the beginning of my, sent me on my path, yeah. you know, in 2020. I had never heard of him, and, you know, I was very late to the party. But uh, <laughs> I, so I really did a deep dive on Jordan mm. Peterson because I had a strong background in psychology. You know, a lot of that stuff resonated for me. I, I do have some theories on I feel like he's shifted a lot over mm-hmm. the really, after he went to the rehab. You know, mm-hmm. I have some theories on that. It just seems like he's, you know he he's saying very different things than he was back then. But you were talking about how there's this Overton window of the classical liberalism, mm-hmm. and then there's CIA libertarianism and CIA Marxism. Mm-hmm. And, uh, this very much resonated for me. You were talking about how, like, if you're outside of this classical liberal window, then you're kind of, you know, a pariah, and you're ousted, and you're censored and banned, and it's yep. really hard to get any kind of traction. They really just don't want people who are outside that sorcerer's circle. Yeah, right. <laughs> and it, I think a lot of people, particularly people who would be versed with like your work or my work, would be. You're kind of aware of the CIA Marxist right. uh, infiltration, you know. Of course, a lot of I think a lot of people who just, you know, paid attention to the news at all, you know, they they'll remember Rich Higgins did the memo to Trump, uh, talking. You're familiar with that? I think so. Yeah, it was in 2017. He got fired shortly after, but it was a warning. It's a I recommend everybody read it. It was mm-hmm. very concise, it was only seven pages long, and it really outlines a lot of, you know, what we'd call like a color revolution, mm-hmm. and how they were targeting Trump because he was somehow a bulwark against their plans for this right. color, color revolution. And whether you believe that to be true or not, the memo is really worth reading because he really does outline what a color revolution yeah. is and the the threat of the the Marxist infiltration. Mm-hmm. And so I think people are familiar with that, although I think we should outline it. But I don't think a lot of people are familiar with CIA libertarianism, no, no. Uh, and uh, or even this classical liberal uh, window yeah. that how it somehow encompasses Marxism as well. I think that's not something most people right. would believe. So. I, yeah, what are your? What did you mean by all that?
1: Well, first thing I would say is that uh, I didn't dive deep into Jordan Peterson, actually, until recently. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm like, I mean, I've seen- See You're
0: way later than me. I'm
1: way later than everybody, <laughs> but like, I mean, I've known his positions sure. and I've seen clips over the years, uh, mm-hmm. probably going back to 2015, 16. Mm-hmm. But I never really paid attention, so, um, but one of the first things I saw was that, certainly I agreed with a lot of his um, takes when it came to, you know insights from Carl Jung or archetypes or patterns and principles that kind of underlie how we uh, are are informed by our uh, upbringing. So this is like Piaget stuff.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um he talks about how uh, shamanic and ancient medieval cultures can have insights for our culture today because they understood all realities connected. Mm-hmm. And since the Enlightenment, we see reality as disconnected. So I'm just pointing out a lot of the points that I agree with, right? Sure. So there's a lot yeah. of things that and I'm just right now, for example, going through his older uh, personality psychology, personality lectures, and I'm about. Which halfway. I
0: think are some of his better. Work, yeah, those be are
1: honest. really good. I'm I, about halfway. And through And a
0: lot those. of people talk about you know rules for uh you know twelve rules for life, and then mm-hmm, his sequel. Mm-hmm. I, I would say I think uh, Maps of Meaning was actually yeah, much that's better. Yeah.
1: I'm, I'm doing that next. going Someone did the whole Maps of Meaning, but and I he have, did
0: a whole course on it. He did it a few
1: times. Yes. Like, yeah. Um. So that's the the, the agreement points that come to mind sure. right away. So there's a lot of things. That, so this you know, it's not like well, I just want to. have to go after Peterson. <laughs> figure right, right. But um, one thing I noticed was that I, he, he seemed to have to, uh, and I think to a degree, to be successful in media, you kind of have to be a little bit of a classical liberal. Yep. In today. Because like you said, if you're not, then people are automatically assume, oh, you must be the third position fascist because mm. the only people that critique classical liberalism are fascists, which is not true.
0: Right.
1: Uh, I mean, I can make a critique of classical liberalism just from a medieval perspective um, with nothing to do with fascism, which is itself a revolutionary 20th century philosophy. Right. So I don't have to pick any of the revolutionary philosophies in my view, um, but that's a different issue. So. Mm. I think that in order to understand how we get to CIA libertarianism, we should look at the whole history of the Enlightenment itself, how it goes from um, a revolution against metaphysics and philosophy in the medieval sense. And so that sets the stage for a lot of movements, a lot of uh, political... anti-social political movements to rise that could then uh, upset and displace all of society. So I think first thing we should understand is that people like the economic theorists like David Ricardo and Adam Smith and uh, John Locke and the the ideas of laissez-faire and all that, they were themselves philosophies of economics pushed by the merchant class for a specific reason. Mm -hmm. So now this doesn't mean that there weren't uh, kings and queens that were tyrannical, there were. But for example, one thing that the merchant class in pushing a lot of laissez-faire wanted to do was to open up the ability to import uh, foreign labor, mm-hmm. to drive down prices, right? right? But one thing that kings and queens would do with tariffs is that they knew that this would be damaging to the existing laborers in their kingdom or in their people group. Right. So there's an argument to be made that just having completely open economic borders Actually, can be damaging to the you know existing population. Mm-hmm. That was one reason for tariffs. It also now,
0: drive out uh, the manufacturing production yeah. within the.
1: Homes. Yeah, I mean, that's just another way. Yeah. Yeah, you could have the really skilled craftsmen. If they're, uh, you know, if their profits are driven down, then they might go somewhere else. Right, right. So yeah, there's a lot of different uh, negatives that could occur from having no. Uh, trade barriers, or something like that, and and I I believe that a lot of the uh, economic philosophers of that time probably genuinely believed that you could have some kind of international, open, purely free neo or liberal economic theory, and that this would bring about world peace.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: For example, John Locke writes a, Emmanuel uh, 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 Kant writes a famous mm-hmm. treatise about how world government could be put in place to ensure. Total economic liberties, mm-hmm. and if you did that, then you would no longer have war. Right. Which to to me, uh, and this is really what underlies a lot of the economic, or the uh, anthropology, of the Enlightenment, is that it's based on a very naive uh, and sort of universalized view of human nature. Right. So it's kind of like this
0: is where Hayek comes mm-hmm. up with his yeah.
1: And I'm yeah, I'm not trying to be too wordy. I'll try to make yeah, it. You know, I'll get up to the modern day, but I think we have to understand these Enlightenment yeah, people because. So. Because they really set the stage for the dialectic that still exists today.
0: Absolutely. So
1: after this, you get revolutionary philosophies and movements that really come to the fore in France. Mm -hmm. You get, uh, obviously, French Revolution. I spent a lot of time in my undergrad on French Revolution. So this has fascinated me because you get two... uh, Revolutionary movements that really come to the fore in France, you get the Girondins and the Jacobins. The Girondins are the right-wing revolutionaries. They influence the American revolutionaries more so than the Jacobins. Although some of the Jacobin philosophy does influence Ben Franklin and Thomas Jefferson. So, and this but, is
0: where we get the terms right and left from. Exactly. Yeah.
1: So, and then this is why Washington says that the Illuminists are dangerous. As mm-hmm. you know, so. So not every revolutionary is the same or has the same. Um, and I'm not saying that the founding fathers are all bad. I mean, I think that the Bank of England and a lot of that was played into. You know, the they were against central banks and usury and all that. So I would agree with them on those points. But sure. usually, this is part of the problems. A lot of the um, laissez-faire and open economic theorists are pro-usury, pro usury, pro debt-based, pro. In other words, it's like, well, if a bank wants to be a fiat bank, then who are you to say that they can't, right? So in other words, it's kind of a a double-edged sword of on the one hand, most uh, economic liberals would support things like usury on a mass scale um, and perhaps even fiat, but at the same time, many of them might critique it or, or be opposed to it. So to me, there's no clear cut answer in classical liberal philosophy as to which one ought to be or ought not to be the case because, most classical liberal and Enlightenment philosophies are premised on anti-metaphysics. And once you start talking about oughts and, and uh, value judgments, you're back in the domain of me- metaphysics. So right. uh, on the one end, you have a philosophy that wants to be anti-metaphysic and wants to be uh, revolutionary, wants to be based around so-called liberty and freedom, but there's no context or milieu to give meaning to or an account for what it means to have freedom. Freedom is a metaphysical idea. Mm-hmm. Right. And you know, a lot of materialists today, like Sam Harris, people like that, like they deny freedom. They're right. determinists. Yeah. So, you know, if you're gonna be anti-metaphysics, how are you gonna grapple with these, you know, these claims or these ideas that are even in, you know, the founding documents like life, liberty, pursuit of happiness or something like that. I mean, those those are metaphysical terms, right? Mm-hmm. Those are things that can't be reduced to merely um you know, re- reductionist material meaning, so.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and they say that in the document, they say that it's uh, because we're endowed with those rights from the creator. Right. So they they do put that in
1: there. I do uh, admit, Yeah. So I'm not trying to say they're all atheists, right? Yeah. I mean, you get a lot of, there's a mix, right? So yeah. you get deists, you've got yep. uh, Christians, you've got uh, other religions, you've sure. got atheists. They're all kind of in the mix, masons
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, yeah. of the founding fathers and founding documents and all that. So they, they have good and bad. I'm not, sure. I'm not denying that. But I'm just saying there's a, from all the enlightenment philosophers, there's a bent towards um, not doing metaphysics anymore. Mm-hmm. So they wanna try to, like whole Project was trying to defend metaphysics, um, which I don't think he succeeded in doing <laughs> because it was all just still mental. So yeah. it's not really metaphysics, but it's just psychology Yeah. Reduces, anyway. So- I would agree um, with that, Damn. Hegel and people like this, like they try to bring back metaphysics. I don't think their projects are successful, but. What really dominates in what's so called I think the Anglo Hegel theory.
0: kind of inverted, you know, metaphysics. But
1: well, but it's still a metaphysical system of right. idealism. The
0: framework is metaphysical. And then, but
1: right. And then, and I know you know that we got to get Hegel before Marx because Marx will take the idealism and turn it to that's physicalism, and that's it. It's yeah. materialism. Right. <laughs> yeah. But I'm just saying that Hegel is an example or a proof that the that metaphysics is being opposed and he's an attempt, a failed attempt, to bring it back, just like Kant's a failed attempt to bring it back. They both are idealists, ultimately.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: So what dominates the Anglosphere, or what's called Anglo-empiricism, is connected to the economic theory, what some people call Whig economic theory. If you're talking about England, England itself adopted this kind of proto-democracy, radical, egalitarian movement, and it's it's tied to also ideas of liberty and all other, other areas of life. So um, there's a metaphysical assumption of certain economic theories, even if they're not aware of that metaphysical assumption. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so this brings us up to uh, the 20th century, and then we have the predominance of things like Marxism-Socialism, which are themselves, as you said, revolutionary movements. Right. Marxism-Socialism is a continuation of the Jacobins out of the French Revolution. Mm-hmm. So they're the proto-Marxists, Adam Weishaupt, very much proto-Marxist. If you read the Billington book, he talks about Wannirati. He talks about Weishaupt. He talks about these people. These are the the seminal pre-revolutionary Marxists that influence... Marx and Hegel, mm-hmm. I'm assuming, uh, uh, Marx and Engels. Engels, yeah. Yeah. And so then after Marx, we get a bunch of Marxists who have differing forms of Marxism, as you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of them believe that you can ally with big capital. One of the, the main group there is the Fabian Socialists out of England. And uh, I would argue that what happens with the entire Western power structure is that basically they kind of adopt that. You still have people who have, who don't like Keynes. Um, a lot of people who are maybe right-wing American establishment, CIA people, they might not like Keynesian economics, but um, it kind of becomes the predominant, I would argue, philosophy de facto, even if people don't know about it. Mm-hmm. And that's why everything is moving in this uh, hybrid corporate uh, monopoly capital structure. That is Fabian socialism. So. Um, how do we get CIA libertarianism uh, libertarianism out of this? Well, because libertarian movements going back to French Revolution and going back to America's founding, they're very useful for if you're a power structure and you want to take a movement and kind of utilize it or Mm -hmm. brand it as uh, this is the American movement. And to a degree it's true that the founding fathers were kind of libertarian, right? Sure. I mean, they were small government, minarchist, this kind of stuff, libertarian, maybe even anarcho-libertarian in some cases. So um, this then is a useful uh, tool in the Cold War. Mm -hmm. So when the Cold War comes about, it's this idea that, well, how are we gonna combat uh, Soviet collectivism, which Mm -hmm. is different from strict classical Marxism? Right. There's Marxism branches into history, Hismat and Diamat, historical materialism and dialectical materialism, um, and the Soviet Union marks uh, the Stalinists become their own kind of entity that a lot of the Marxists argue is a betrayal of Marxism. They, would call, they called like Trotsky, Lenin, those people, they called Stalinism uh, bourgeois uh, right. Marxism. Right. Because Stalin was kind of like acting like the czar, right. which would be bourgeois, right? So there was this critique that it wasn't authentic Marxism. And so the Frankfurt School Marxists and the critical theory Marxists, who you could argue were maybe more faithful to classical Marxism, they were brought over to America during World War II uh, by the OSS to teach the OSS and then the CIA how to battle Nazis. So they were useful in one way for cultural war. And this right. is where we get the idea of cultural Marxism in the Frankfurt School. Um, Bertrand Russell had a big role in... in saying, hey, we need to use uh, these guys in, in terms of the CIA. So this is the first kind of uh, open alliance between Marxists and the CIA. Um, there's other later more, uh, alliances that we learned about when the CIA declassified the fact that uh, Mao's guerrillas were trained by, uh, well, Bill Donovan. Mm-hmm. So this was again under the auspices of, well, the only way to be fascism is to make the alliance with Marxists. So we're gonna have to train Mao's guerrillas, we might even, and you can even make an argument that um, because Mao was a Yale, what's called Yale in China, right. that it was always kind of this. And a
0: lot of people argue with me on that point, but
1: it, it's yeah. in uh, the there. Are, it's in the Yale Magazine. Mm-hmm. There's an old Yale Magazine about Mao being a Yale in China. So you know, okay, maybe Stalin, maybe Mao, maybe these people didn't completely go according to what the script wanted, but it doesn't really matter because these are, I think as Russell, Bertrand Russell said, these are experiments. Mm-hmm. He called them technological experiments in governance in other countries, right? Yeah. So let's experiment with uh, st- Stalinism, let's experiment with Menshevism, Bolshevism, all these different things can be experiments from their perspective. Right. That doesn't mean that the CIA or the uh, British Intelligence or Western Power Structure necessarily believes those ideologies. They're right. useful tools, and so you mentioned color revolutions. A lot of, a lot of times, color revolutions will utilize um, peculiarities of the culture that they want to target. Mm-hmm. So maybe there's a, a society over here, uh, rose revolution, uh, you know, green revolution, whatever colors they want to put. So they'll they'll say, oh, the women are oppressed over here, so they want to push feminism there. Right. Or over here, it's uh, uh, oh, we want to push economic freedom and liberalism because you know the, whoever prior. Soviet or communist was economically heavy-handed, so we wanna push economic liberty. And most of those color revolutions were connected to what you could call CIA libertarianism. Color revolutions are a great example of this, and this is, a, I mean, Soros actually played a key role working with the CIA in the 1980s to help establish a lot of the color revolutions. This, this began actually under Reagan. Mm-hmm. So it was part of the Cold War under Reagan to utilize Libertarian economic theory and neoliberal economics in the Soviet bloc countries, and it was part of the way that they would transform those countries as the Cold War was winding down, right? Right. So this is so. so color revolutions themselves are actually CIA libertarian movements. That's why they utilize um, again economic liberalism. So. That doesn't mean that every person who's a libertarian or has an economic theory of uh, open border or uh, uh, laissez faire is a CIA agent. I'm not saying that. You're saying that it's a tool that's used depending upon the situation. So, in some cases, like you said, they might want to utilize um, socialism, Fabian socialism, or in some cases, maybe even Marxism as a tool. So, as you know from Sutton, right? Mm -hmm. Marxism is used to change Russia. Right. Um, What we find out with Bill Donovan training Mao's guerrillas is Maoism, I think, was used to change China, right? right? Yeah. Um, and the same thing goes for a lot of these other movements is that they're pushed and they're fostered in that way, but it's not like, that's, it's not like only leftism is used. You mm-hmm. can use what we think of as conservative movements as well. Uh, I mean, I would argue that you know, if we think of Hitler as, okay, he's far right, well, he was funded by a lot of the same people. Sure. Quigley says it was the Bank of England and Schroeder Bank that produced Alan Dulles that funded Hitler, right. Okay, so it's the same bank that's funding <laughs> Hitler that also is basically helping to set up the CIA. Mm-hmm. that makes sense. Yes. and then we know about Paperclip, right Yeah everybody knows about operation Paperclip. Sure. And it wasn't any different with these other movements is that they can be used. they can become tools. and if you're if you're a government and you're interested in power, mm-hmm. um, you're not so much interested in necessarily What ideology is true or false? Right,
0: right.
1: You want to know which one works. Right, it's a tool. Exactly. So it's power politics, it's pragmatic. And so I think that in a lot of cases during the Cold War, um, let's take David Rockefeller, for example. Now, he actually began his intelligence career in World War II, I think. And he was an intelligence officer, but what he did was, he says in his memoirs, he took all that know-how and just applied it to his own private business and set up his own private intelligence network. Mm. So there's a great section of his memoirs on that. Um, and you get the same thing with um, his economic theory where he is a younger man, studies under von Hayek, who you mentioned, who people oftentimes think of as an au- Austrian economist and a libertarian. But as you said, the appendix of the uh, road to serfdom has a whole chapter on how we need a world government. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what david rockefeller argued for i mean rockefeller's just basically the same thing in the memoirs right yeah. so he studied under von hayek he does uh, one of his dissertations on anselm's uh atonement theory and debt payment and then he goes on to study under fabian socialist harold laski at harvard so he's actually got both he's got a good understanding of both, both. schools right the right. fabian socialist and the austrian economists who don't like kings and and stuff, right? Right. They don't like Keynesianism. And the
0: Austrian School of Economics was also funded by the London School of Economics. Exactly. Yeah, who are the Fabians.
1: Who are so, Fabians, yeah. exactly. So I think that um, Dave Rockefeller himself is a good example of somebody who transcends that dialectic but wants to use and sees the usefulness of both of those. Right. And he says, for example, Uh, one of the reasons that he likes socialism is that it it basically organizes an entire country and then he can go in and set up the only valid bank. Right. So he went into China and set up Chase Bank and that's the only bank allowed in China because you make the deal with the only government power structure, right? Right. So there's an advantage for monopolists to like socialism. But here's what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. It's not just that they... Tend to like socialism. They can also like uh, open, free market libertarianism if it suits for whatever the agenda is. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you know, color revolutions are a good example. Um, I uh, you know, Brzezinski and Kissinger and Rockefeller. I believe pretty clearly they were the ones that kind of came up with the the project that they used people like Soros to do in the eighties and nineties to go into the uh, former Soviet bloc countries to Westernize them, to open them up, to free them. And a big part of that was economic uh, liber- liberalism. So I'm not saying when I say that, when I say this, oh, you like the Soviet countries. No, no, I'm not <laughs> saying that. I'm just saying that the Soviet bloc countries, right? The Eastern bloc, like they could not have gotten to where they are now if they had not had the economic liberalism change the country. right? And there can be some pros to that, right? Like maybe that you're in a country that's uh, you know, really bad during communism like Romania or something, mm-hmm. okay? That doesn't mean necessarily that the new thing that you're getting, it might be good for a while, you might get some advantages, you might get new economic opportunities, but that just brings in the IMF and the World Bank to then put your future generations into debt. And then what happens? Well, all of these countries are now under NATO, they're now under Western, they're under a new master. Right. Even if it was a bad master before, you could have two bad guys. That's what I'm <laughs> right, trying to right. say, it's right? just
0: one bad guy. Yeah. yeah, so you
1: get before, it's like, do you And they
0: want... can look very different.
1: Exactly, yeah. I mean, I, it, the analogy I use is a great movie called uh, Lives of Others, it's a German film. Yeah, it's a film. great movie. It's really yes. great, about how the East German Stasi would harass artists, yes. right, and this the playwright and his girlfriend that are the actress. And so the Stasi are awful. They're just like a crime syndicate, basically, that harass these people. Yeah. Um, but then it's like, okay, so that was bad, but now the answer is an international Davos group, right? That wants to be in your body and change your DNA. The K- the Stasi didn't want to do that. No. So the Stasi are like a ten, and like the Klaus and all these, they're like a hundred. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So it's not like you go from. Everybody thinks in either ors, they think, oh, well, if they were the bad, then we're the good guys. Well, you can have, I mean, you can have two bad guys. You can have two mafias. I'm reading a book right now about, because I've been doing all these mafia podcasts with Sammy the Bull Gravano. I've been reading the whole history of the Gambino family. Oh, wow. And the Gambinos, who were the biggest of the five uh, mafia families, the most wealthy, Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, they would engage in all kinds of subterfuge, and they would play other families off against, other crime syndicates off other crime syndicates. So here's three bad guys and a tri a trielectic, right? A trifecta. <laughs> tri- so it's not electric. like you either have a good guy or a bad guy, but
0: I had I, dinner you know Gotti Sr. once. Oh wow. Yeah, I didn't know it through the whole dinner. And then afterwards I was I was told that the man sitting next to me was Gotti <laughs> Sr. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, he was very personable. <laughs> but uh, yeah. I'm glad I didn't know till after the dinner though.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of those guys were charismatic figures. Yeah. Um I mean, Sammy the Bull's really charismatic. He, yeah. his, his channel wouldn't be popular if it wasn't, but, um, sure. but that's another example of yeah. libertarian alliance because CIA made a lot of alliances with the mafia. Right. Uh, Operation Underworld, um, Vito Genovese, you can go back to all kinds, I mean, the drug running.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, out of Sicily, heroin would have come from Sicily and other countries, and that was Sicilian mafia throughout like the 30s, 40s, 50s. They were the primary runners of that, but that couldn't happen without deals made with naval intelligence and in the CIA. So, um, but the reason that is relevant is that a lot of those a lot of those people would argue for libertarian principles. Right. Uh, the original they mobsters. If, were if actually, they want
0: all reins off. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> uh, the original mobsters were actually kind of libertarians in uh, Naples and Sicily, but um, interesting so back to cia libertarianism um you know when you look past david Rockefeller, you can look at other entities or other people that came to the fore that were very powerful for example william f buckley was mm-hmm. promoted to be kind of the face of conservatism right um and he was a totally 100 percent you know cia controlled person right um he was the face of you know cia libertarianism in the cold war and a lot of people think i think with good reason that this was intentionally a way to make American conservatism not paleoconservative, mm-hmm. but to make mm-hmm. it strictly libertarian. Because oh, I, I, believe, I believe libertarianism, although it has a lot of good points, mm-hmm. it's a lot easier to meld that into something else that you want mm-hmm. if you're an elite, a global elitist type person. Sure. It's easier than something like paleoconservatism. So a paleocon I think has a better case than a libertarian. It's it's a better position. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if I would identify as that. I'm just saying I think that it's a like a Pat Buchanan. I think is a more a consistent conservative than William F. Buckley. Sure. And Buckley has all kinds of shady stuff going on with him. And um, but you'll notice that during I feel the, like
0: he paved the way for the neocons.
1: Exactly. And, and, that's and what to that's me that thing.
0: really does look like a dialectical paradigm because now you have all these people who the neocons look strangely kind of like the, the leftists in a lot of ways. Absolutely. Right? But
1: yeah neoconservatism is a great mix of these positions. I mean, um, but another person that that I know I noticed I used to watch a lot of uh, Buckley and Noam Chomsky debates okay. because uh, Buckley would do his famous TV show Firing Line, and it was like all faux debates like we're talking about. Mm-hmm. So if you want a great example what you're talking about, he would always have these arguments um, like during the '60s and '70s on his popular TV show with Noam Chomsky, okay so Chomsky would represent like this. Fake left position, and oh, interesting. Buckley is this fake right position. Right. So it establishes like like you're saying the limit of where you can go in the Overton window of the acceptable discourse, and you can't go outside of that. But there were already part of Buckley a lot of people who were conservative that were not part of that dialectic. Like again, like I mean, you could I mean I know Pat Buchanan's later, but he's a better example of a conservative than William M. Buckley. But they would have this controlled, you know, softball back and forth, like, do you like Ayn Rand, or do you like, I don't know, I'm trying to remember, who who did uh, Noam Chomsky like, I don't know. Do you like Chomsky himself, right? (laughs) Because he would write these books about uh, all kinds of leftist stuff. But yeah, so it's like uh, just a fake kind of softball match on firing line or whatever. But I mean, there's plenty of other examples too. I think the Libertarian Party itself, you could look at its trajectory and how often how Easily, for example, it uh, like I remember three or four years ago, I mean, it was putting up like total social justice, like it totally capitulated to social justice stuff. Yeah, like yeah. maybe not everybody in the libertarian, but many of their nominees capitulated to the woke pressure, right? So, um, I don't, I never really got involved in like the libertarian party or anything like that, so I can't say what who the people are, the architecture of it, but I think a lot of people. Um, famously, who were libertarian nominees were from the CA, um, and I'm not saying that makes them a bad person. I'm just saying that it's just kind of it's shows controlled. my it shows my point, right? right. It's like yeah. you're only allowed to have a, a limited discourse, and that's that over to window stuff.
0: So, what would be outside of this window? Like,
1: I mean, pretty much any position that isn't uh, a, a very narrow scope of you know, what we think of as Republican and Democrat. Okay. I mean, we might be tempted to think, well, libertarian politics is outside of the scope of Democrat and Republican. But what I'm saying is that it's not really, It's. It, I mean, today's Democrat and Republican are really just, just deviations of older forms of socialism, democracy, and libertarianism. So it's not really. Um, there might be specific, positions that a libertarian could have that are outside of the acceptable discourse. I don't know, I'm trying to think of one. Maybe you think that you should have the uh, the right to 3D print uh, bazookas. I don't know like what a libertarian <laughs> might think. Uh, maybe you can 3D print your own organs or something and, and that's a, a right that's outside of the normal discourse. I don't know, but I, I met a libertarian professor not too long ago actually. He made a his whole book, uh, and I'm not making fun of the guy, it's just his position. Mm-hmm. He argues that the organ trade should be privatized. That you should oh, actually have a free market organ trade. Interesting. Okay. So that's not a means. I think we kind of <laughs> do,
0: and it's called the black market. I know, organ. Right? <laughs> but Well,
1: he's arguing that you wouldn't have a black market if.
0: Right, you know, right. I get kind of I get stuff. it. <laughs>
1: but um, and, you know, I, 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 there's a lot of libertarian things I do like, so I'm not trying to yeah, just I hate like, libertarianism. I, I get it. I mean, I mean, I've you, read where Rand, I've read von Hayek and von Mises and all these
0: things. Yeah, and even though the last chapter buys for a one-world government, I, there's still a lot of merit yes. to a lot of yeah. what he says before that.
1: I think there's some kind of, I mean, I don't have the perfect answer, but there's some kind of balance between some degree of uh, laws that protect
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, some kind of nation-state that has boundaries, firewall, right. that protects the people against... Monopoly corporations mm-hmm. that doesn't fall over somehow into um, corporatism, but also doesn't fall over into a gigantic super state. They, I mean, I don't know the balance. There's got to be some kind of balance that we could shoot for. But, I would hope so. But the real world, here's the thing about libertarianism is it's kind of premised on a lot of Idealism. ideals. And yeah. the real world, it just doesn't work that way. It also has an idealized view of humans that yes. the only problem with humans is education. This is a very uh Pelagian and Greek idea that uh you know the, the Greek philosophers like you know some of them like Plato and Aristotle maybe not Aristotle more so Plato um and many others would say well uh you know man's only problem is that he lacks knowledge no right. man would choose vice knowingly right but no i think there are plenty of people who know what they're doing and they're evil like they choose they willingly choose evil i mean just think about a uh uh an evil genius yeah, I mean, there are evil geniuses. Totally.
0: Right? Well, and there are also the people who are deceived. This is uh, what we were oh, yeah, talking exactly. about before, like the uh, you know uh, Marxists versus the Smithian mm-hmm. kind of paradigm, mm-hmm. and uh, Smith, who a lot of uh, you know libertarian-minded people would definitely point to as some sort of uh, an icon, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a lot of what he promoted was this idea of essentially, and I know he's very influenced by Mandeville, but essentially virtue through sin.
1: Mm-hmm. Right, it's like yes. what the
0: greed is. We need the greed because right. that's what breeds people to work hard, and that's why capitalism is good. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, you you wouldn't be motivated to do that if you didn't have your greed and your ambitions and your right. yeah. So that's a so it's, it's not taking into account that and and those are could be good people who have just been deceived. They're thinking, yep. oh, we're just going to use that's part of humanity.
1: And. Yeah, I think a lot of people go into working in uh, intelligence that they're probably doing good things in the, from a good place, mm-hmm. motivations, they want to help the country and they believe in the you know freedoms that we supposedly represent or whatever. <laughs> okay. But the other thing is that it's not so much people that are doing analysis or writing reports or maybe even doing operations. It's like higher level people that run these things are very corrupt, as you yeah. know. And they, I believe, are serving other interests, you know, Fortune 100, Fortune 500, um, these kinds of, you know, steering committees, these people, and they don't care about any ideology per se, unless it's an ideology of technocratic control. I think they're committed to that
0: <laughs> 100%. <laughs> but yeah.
1: they, but like I say, there's a great quote that proves this point, uh, not so much about the CIA, but H.G. Uh, Wells in, I can't remember if it's uh, New World Order or uh, uh, Open Conspiracy, he basically says, All you Marxists, you're, you're idiots because you think that your enemy is the capitalist. Mm-hmm. It's not. The capitalist, he says, will build the world. That the, that the Marxists will take over. It will build the technocracy world. Right. And he says, you need the engine of capitalism to build all this. Of course. And then he says, we'll take it over. We'll steal it from them. We that. will take over. Yeah. He says that ultimately I mean, you will inherit. see
0: that, isn't that? That seems to be what's happening.
1: Yeah, Spengler even said this. He said that the, the Western civilization will build the technology that others would use to take them over. Yeah. I
0: have to so that's
1: we're Another thing too about CA Marxism or CA uh, Libertarianism okay. that I just remembered is um, in uh, you know Saunders's Congress for Cultural Freedom book uh, and in Stephen Dorrell's MI Six book. There's actually a whole chapter that's really good on the Congress for Cultural Freedom and what all they funded. Okay. So they funded a lot of libertarian ideas in the arts. So remember oh, libert- right. libertarianism is not just an economic theory. It might have a focus in economics, sure. but the idea is typically just you know freedom in all ways. yeah, so yeah. like I, if I want to um try not to be too super dirty here, but <laughs> like if I want to build an art project in my lawn of <laughs> um, dead carcasses having intercourse.
0: Okay, Okay. This
1: is an analogy a lot of people use when they're arguing with libertarians, right? (laughs) So it's like, so I can have this on public display in my yard, right? Mm -hmm. And if this offends you and your kids, well, just don't look.
0: Right, right.
1: But I mean, I think we all kind of sense that there's something wrong with this. Like that's something wrong in my Mm -hmm. opinion. So it's just a funny example a lot of people use to point out that there's there's not really any.
0: Because there's no moral counterbalance. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's not it's not actually true that we are as individuals completely free. Right. I mean, if if we were, we would be Marquis de Sade or Crowley. Right. Right. I mean, they would say stuff like, I'm absolutely free. Like I'm so free that I can go kill and rape and do what I want, right? That's the Marquis de Sade's whole thing. So um so no, we're we're not actually totally libertarian in the Anton LaVey, Crowley, Marquis de Sade sense free. Right. So we all understand there's gotta be some kind of limitations.
0: Little gods.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So there's got to be, there are limitations to what freedom means. Well, how do we define that? How do we know that? <clears throat> so that's why worldview and a philosophy is necessary. You can't just have like self-evident ideas of freedom, I don't think. <clears throat> um, but in the Cold War, they were funding a lot of yeah, like radical poly- arts and, yeah. under the guise of freedom, including Playboy, including uh, feminism. Feminism was packaged as freedom, mm-hmm. which is not, but they were no. they were packaging it that way through Ms. Magazine. It's women's
0: liberation. They're liberated.
1: And what does Marx say? Liberation. Yeah, right.
0: right.
1: All the Marxist movements are always called the liberation front, right? Yes. So it's like, whether it's Marxism or whether it's, uh, uh, you know, laissez-faire, libertarian economic theory, they're both promising essentially what Marx said, which is the withering away of the state. That he says what? Marx's final goal Mm-hmm. And Marx himself, maybe not the other guys, but Marx himself said that the final goal is the withering away of the state. Right. That's the libertarian view. Yeah. So Marx that root is But a, he,
0: he said it because then you would be able to take over.
1: You could argue that he just he viewed that as a pragmatic power thing, but yeah. I'm saying like his argument about the final stage, mm-hmm. he says after we have uh, big global- uh, like he he argued there would be like a Stalin phase, like a, that. Mm-hmm. He didn't talk about Stalin, but he's saying like a phase of state communism, mm-hmm. and he says that will eventually give way right. to no state. So yeah. we would all be free. And he has this thing where he talks about that we. I, I'm not saying that mm-hmm. it's true, but I'm saying that <laughs> he makes this argument, right, okay. probably just trying to sell the position. Sure. Um, one thing he said too, if people don't know that he and Engels argued for open borders. Yeah. And he did that because he said it would make the workers angry because their wages would go down Mm -hmm. and they would lose their jobs and then they would become the revolutionary proletariat. Now that didn't happen, but that was one of the reasons why he thought. Um, And so you could argue maybe this is just a utopian false promise that Marx was offering, but I'm just pointing out that it's ironic that the end goal of every hardcore libertarian is get rid of the state. And it's like, okay, but so that's what Marx said. And so it's just two, it's different. Means to the same end, which is this idea of some sort of earthly pseudo utopia.
0: Right. I, I guess the difference is I, I do see Marxists having vied for that in a more pragmatic kind of sense, because then you could have you would have the essentially the communist utopia, mm-hmm. the Marxist utopia, versus whereas I think the libertarians. And I'm not saying that this is accurate, but I think they have this notion that then every man would essentially be his own authoritarian entity Mm
1: -hmm. so he's
0: free because he's you
1: know the author well there's a state there's a thing where marx talks about uh in the final stage when there is no state he says every man will be able to wake up uh go paint a picture go fish and do as he wants throughout the day right because part of it was that you're alienated from nature so now you're going to be reconciled to nature so you can go fish and just chill all day because um supposedly there would be no more state which was which would be it's, so in other words, it's almost like he understood the that the state would oppress. Right. When it becomes world world <laughs> communism. Right, right. But then he's promising everybody that, oh, but you're gonna get, don't worry, it'll go away. There'll be a phase where we get this total libertarian future. Anyway, yes. it's just there's always a dialectic of yes. um, control and freedom in one or many. Do you want anarchism or do you want collectivism? And I just view these as either ors that will never be reconciled because humans are made to be individuals and mm-hmm. to be in a group yeah. setting. Yeah. I agree we shouldn't have it forced on us. <laughs> I <laughs> right, don't want right. the state forcing me to be in various groups. I don't want the state to force me to uh, you know, be conscripted. Right. Because even though you might could argue that maybe in medieval times, this would be necessary for the common good uh, because you were fighting actually to defend your land or something from a rival tribe, Sure. I don't believe today's wars are fought for that. They're fought right. for, you know, the Fortune 100.
0: Right.
1: So, I mean, if you want to die for the Fortune 100, I mean, <laughs> you should at <laughs> least have the option. I right shouldn't ahead. be forced to do it. You right. know what I mean? I don't want to die for Subway, but um, I do. I w- I will die for Walmart, but well, not, not Subway. I'm joking.
0: Well, I, I can understand. I mean, Walmart, it, they, they've offered quite a bit, you know? <laughs>
1: Actually, I would I would rather die for Subway than Walmart. So, so Even I though
0: always, Subway puts the, uh, I always like on what it's I called, but, but you know, that's in the yoga mats and they put it in their brand.
1: Yeah, I know, but I'm just saying like, <laughs> if I'm going to die, uh, you know, I would rather die with a yoga mat sub on the battlefield than,
0: I don't know. You'll be very zen. Drinking so, a Sam's
1: Choice yeah. or something.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I, what does this mean for, because this kind of came out of a conversation about, essentially, the media. And what is, right, well, in a sense, because you were talking about.
1: The, the windows. The Overton yeah. window,
0: right? And, well, what does that mean for the, because I know libertarianism and Marxism is not purely economic mm-hmm. theory. Um, you know, even Marx themselves, I mean, the Communist Manifesto was not at all about economics. Um, but then he wrote, does come and tell and that's, but yeah, I. so what does it mean for the narratives and the, the people who are um, either commentating or, mm-hmm. yeah.
1: I think that um, what happens is that, in the Cold War especially, uh, media information, mm-hmm. things get centralized big yeah. time. And so it was a lot easier in that time period to control uh, the acceptable discourse. Right. So you could only have a TV show if the networks wanted you to have a TV show. They were all run by former intelligence people, they're all corporate elites, and they decide uh, William F. Buckley and Noam Chomsky are gonna have the fake softball conversation, right? Right. So that was part of the whole architecture of the Cold War, was controlling uh, the narrative in that way. And that was studied at that time uh, throughout the Cold War through these, you know, Tavistock and all these different institutes and countless other psychology departments figuring out how to scientifically engineer media. Right. So that was achieved, I think, very successfully. And then the internet kind of, I mean, I don't know, ultimately. I mean, I think in the long run, they believe that the internet will be there for human control. Right. That's the goal that I believe they put the internet out for.
0: To have the technological takeover. Yeah,
1: Yeah. but I think there's been a window, a time where uh, the narrative, Was not controlled Mm -hmm. very well. Right. And so that's why they brought in the last uh, several years going back to Trump. uh, And they used the justification of the the misinformation of Trump and the the election and the bots to do the online crackdown. Right. And then I don't know if you know about the integrity leaks. Do you know about that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that, I think, shows the desire to, at all costs, not just prevent the second Trump administration, but to ensure that um, all the tech platforms were rigidly controlled and locked down, and basically deleting and censoring anyone. And that was what they used throughout the last three years, right? Right. Which had been put in place under the auspices of Trump, the Steele dossier, P-Gate, and all that nonsense. Right. So I think that we're at a weird place now where the narrative was starting to be um, questioned and that people were talking outside of the controlled dialectic. Uh, this has happened a few times. It happened mm-hmm. to a degree when Ron Paul was, I know he's libertarian, but mm-hmm. when he was focusing on in 2007 and eight the Federal Reserve. right? And he woke a lot of people up to the Federal Reserve sure. and he pushed a lot of the Giova Griffin material yeah. that you just talked about, Giova Griffin. Um, but then they were pretty quick to like shut him down in the primaries and all that, if you yeah, remember. Yeah, well, Jesus they Sonate. used the
0: Tavistock term, isolationist, to That's discredit right. him. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Then there was another uh, phase to where uh, the dissident right started to rise, and in my view, they easily co-opted that and destroyed it very easily.
0: Yeah, Because they, I think they're still working very hard on that, oh, they're yeah. creating a lot of traps in them, yeah.
1: yeah. Um, that's an, one example. Um, you could argue that maybe even there, there have been some leftist uh, movements and arguments that were not within the controlled left and right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but really it doesn't matter whether it's um, leftists outside of the narrative. Maybe you could argue, argue Abby Martin is a leftist outside of the narrative who's had a lot of opposition. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe you could argue Alex is somebody outside of the left and right, even those a libertarian who's had a lot of opposition. Mm-hmm. Um, the right-wing dissident movements of the last several years, they often get turned into crazy kook stuff. Yep. They get uh, spearheaded by people who um, I think are there to destroy those movements. Yeah. Uh, and that's just typical for the power structure and for control mm-hmm. to, to want to steer a movement, to want to control it and either ruin it or turn it into something dumb or, you know, get it obsessed with nonsense. Um, Those are all old techniques and tricks that the establishment uses. Um, So I'm not restricting the CIA to being interested in, you know what I mean? And they're only interested in Fabian socialism and uh, libertarianism or something like that. Like, no, uh, libertarianism was very useful as a uh, a meme during the Cold War. And then it's very, they're happy to dispense with that um, you know, post Reagan and after, it's the neoliberal uh, economic stuff serves its purpose in foreign policy and the uh, color revolutions, and all that. They're happy to would dispense with all that and immediately flip over into some more heavy-handed, uh, quasi-socialist situation. Right. So, yeah, I see it as a tool. Basically.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I, what I also see is, that, and this would be more the uh, the corporation, the Fortune One Hundreds. Um, but what I see right now happening is they're they're going they, I, I think, you know, as you pointed out, the uh, the kind of open forum decentralization of the information that, that happened with the the internet. Mm-hmm. And, I, and now what I'm seeing is they're trying really hard to create uh, aggregates that I think will be then controlled by uh, a lot of advertising. Yeah And that that's how a lot of these narratives will be. Um, controlled, and I think that it, you know, then they'll again create like these managed dialectical
1: narratives. Yeah, like and they'll have a new um, threat, uh, mm-hmm. some made-up thing. I mean, they were able to get so much traction on that ridiculous um, story of the Russian bots and the you know hackers that bought the little one-inch ads that got Trump elected. I mean, they got so much mileage out of that; it was just ridiculous.
0: Yeah, it was like absurd, I like mean, comically yeah. absurd.
1: And uh, so they'll probably come up with some kind of new threat that you know, online mis- misinformation has you know harmed people in some way. And so uh, who knows? Um, but there's a new hacker collective that has to be shut down. Cyber Polygon, you know, mm-hmm. blames amorphous hackers, which could be <laughs> them, right? I mean, it could be the establishment doing the hacking, right?
0: Probably. Um, we know probably about, would be.
1: Yeah, Vault Seven. We know that they can spoof you know the location of the IP when the hack happens. So. Um, yeah usually usually there's a managed crisis or threat that then is the basis for their oh we will fix this right. by more clampdowns and taking away her
0: What do you think of the other th- trend I'm seeing is the the people who are blaming classical liberalism for the all the like craziness of the left but it was because of classical liberalism that we're seeing you you've seen this right mm-hmm. yeah they use like the slippery slope argument
1: I uh, I think that classical liberalism because of its philosophical presuppositions has within it certain uh, tendencies to go in different directions. It either goes in the direction of politically things like um, collectivism and socialism, mm-hmm. because again, remember that Marxism is a post-enlightenment movement, right? right? Um, or it can go politically in the direction of anarchism, um, disorder, it can go in the direction of uh, collapse, revolution, um, philosophically, morally, it can go in the direction of Marquis Sade it can go in the direction of any of these things, or it can go in the direction of, you know, what we see today, which is some kind of weird postmodern, um, I don't even know what to call the woke stuff. It's like its, like its own cult, it's like a religion. It is a so I think classical liberalism doesn't necessarily, it doesn't necessitate one or other option to go mm-hmm. because it can go in any of those directions. It just depends on which presupposition you want to be more consistent with. So like the founding documents, I mean, I could, I, I see elements of Christianity there mm-hmm. and I see, I mean, other, you know, the, the Bible, the Torah, Moses, I mean, there's a lot of influence, uh, common law, Roman law, sure. all of that's there. Um, But there's also deistic and Freemasonic influences that could conceivably take you in other directions. There's a lot of different ways. So uh, would I say that ultimately the woke stuff is necessarily a result of uh, classical liberalism, not necessarily, but logically could easily lead to it?
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Because, yeah, I think when you're saying if you want to think in binaries, it's it's either or. And really it's just, it's a... It's a facet.
1: well, let me give you one example. So, um, classical this when I did a crit- criticism of Jordan Peterson uh, a few years ago, the first video I made as a critique, it was based on one of his talks about why he took the stance that he did on gender.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: I agree with his stance. yeah, but this there was is a, the
0: bill c six seventeen. I think that yeah.
1: was what I was talking about, yeah, this is probably four or five years ago, but yeah, so I agree with the stance, but there was a a flaw I saw in the argumentation, which, in my view, I don't remember exactly what he was saying, but just in terms of classical liberalism in general, I could make the same point, which is that let's say, let's say you want to give primacy to the individual.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. A lot of times in uh, libertarian anarcho thought, this then means that the individual can define its own meaning. Right. Right? Mm -hmm. That's once, that's like you're right at now, social constructivism or uh the meanings and values are all social constructs
0: right yeah
1: so that's what i'm saying classical liberalism can easily go to that because of the the assumptions not every classical liberal thinks that i can determine at will my biology right but you could conceivably get to that position by the emphasis on radical individualism, that I'm not determined by any external forces. Right. Usually the libertarian's thinking in terms of political or social. Yeah. But it all, because it's anti-metaphysical, uh, does that mean that you're not determined by your familial relations or your biological? Because right. those are metaphysical relations.
0: Sure, so can you have a, like a, a libertarian ideology that is rooted in metaphysics or that is combined with metaphysics?
1: conceivably, uh, I suppose it's possible, but it's just that it's like the whole enlightenment movement kind of comes out of anti-metaphysics. Sure. So I'm trying to think of who could be. I mean, Kant tried to do it, but I think he failed. Yeah. And his metaphysics is just psychology. Um, Hume pretty much says metaphysics is a waste of time. Uh, maybe, I don't know. I mean, I, I, could, I can't think of a revolutionary philosopher or philosophy that would be pro metaphysics unless maybe you argue. I mean, Weishaupt thinks that <laughs> he's like an atheistic Platonist. So that's kind of metaphysical.
0: Would, would, he call, would you call <laughs> Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I wouldn't really call You feel like he's atheistic or you feel like he's a. I mean, to me, like he has a. It's just counter to Judeo-Christian religion, but I don't think he's atheist. Well,
1: there's a reason I would say that, and that's the figure of plethon. There's a really good book on um, the influence of plethon on uh, coming out of Byzantium. He was an atheistic Platonist, and he influenced not just Weishaupt, but prior to Weishaupt, he influenced um, Spinoza and um, one of the other Enlightenment figures, but uh, eventually Hegel, but... Uh, I think Plethon, um, his atheistic Platonism, you could see parallels to the way Billington describes Vyshop's Illuminism because uh, you're probably thinking of like John Robinson and people like that who yeah. argue certain things about. Um, Billington argues that, may, I don't know what Vyshop himself thought about the deity, mm-hmm. but the way that he describes the, we don't need a church or any of that, he says, because I can just get all this from nature. So he has the same atheistic Platonism of Pleithon, but he might have thought that there was some kind of. Are you, are you? Do you think he was a Luciferian or something? I do. Really?
0: I I, I see him as more of a. I, I would see. I don't know if he was like actually a Luciferian. Well, he seems to but deny like supernatural
1: though. That's that's the thing. Is that uh, right, but me, it? So to like, me, that makes like me think he might not have believed in a real devil, but maybe did.
0: I right? I don't. That's why I say I wouldn't necessarily call it where. We're going to run out of time, but I, I, th- this would be a fascinating conversation. Um, <laughs> but I don't necessarily see him as like a, a Satanist or a Luciferian mm-hmm. in the, uh, you know, literal context. But I do see him as, a, you know, believing, maybe more of a Gnostic. Like I think he thought he could, that man could control. He was very much uh, an Illuminist, obviously, uh, which in a lot of ways I think is very Gnostic. Um, but it was his whole way of controlling and of creating the structure that he did was it was basically like creating a cult, which was very yeah. religious. Yeah. Um, there had to be some sort of faith in order to be invested in it and a belief that it would,
1: yeah. Well, if you look it. at, uh, for example, there's a good book by Terry Melanson called Perfectibulus, And in there, he argues that Pretty much all of the members of Baishav's group, a lot of those barons, um, many of them were professed atheists. So maybe they had like an inner secret belief of Luciferianism in some way, but they professed at least to be atheists because they were rationalists. Right,
0: right. So
1: they accepted a lot of the Enlightenment rationalist arguments against um, the classical arguments for God's existence. So there are parallels with Gnosticism, but you Mm can be uh, Gnostic and also kind of atheistic. Yeah, I guess Because you don't, to, yeah, you don't have to, you don't have to posit that the deity has an external real existence.
0: Right, I just think in order for it to be executed, there is an element of uh, faith and it, it is somewhat supernatural. I, I would love to finish up from this conversation. We are gonna wrap up, so everybody can find you at Jay's Analysis. Word. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for watching.
1: Thank you, yeah, it was a lot of fun.
0: Thank you, yeah.